Vardis is a cinema of the street, free, inventive, and unhinged from the constraints of a studio. Through her filmography, she made her own form of revolution, not by climbing the barricades, but by using a discreet grace all of her own. Those are words from director Pietro Marcello on Agnes Varda's Cleo de Saint-Cassette. Seeing Faces and Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. Today we'll be discussing Agnes Varda's 1962 film, Cleo de Saint-Cassette, otherwise known as Cleo from 5 to 7. A brief synopsis of the film, Cleo, a singer and hypochondriac, becomes increasingly worried that she might have cancer while awaiting test results from her doctor. The film stars Corinne Marchand as Florence Cléo Victoire, Antoine Bourseillet as Antoine, Dominique Davray as Angèle, and Dorothée Blanc as Dorothée. It's written by Agnès Varda, cinematography by Paul Bonny, Alain Navin, Jean Rabier, edited by Pascal Laveria and Janine Bernot, and music by Michel Legrand. My guest today is Vinny Tucheri. And I know him from Twitter. He's got a great account where he mainly talks about film and his relationship to film, the film that he owns and he's buying and he's he's watching. And for anyone who thinks that I've seen a lot of films, <laughs> I really pale in comparison to him. He's got an amazing collection of DVDs and Blu-rays as well, which I highly recommend you checking out. I know you've got some pictures on your page there. And, you know, whenever you're posting about films that you're watching or that you've bought, I always add a lot of those to my watch list. So, Vinny, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, no problem. I like uh, I like collecting and I like watching and I like seeing what other people are watching and collecting because, yeah, it's that ever-expanding watch list. So never running out of movies to watch is a fun thing. Yeah, it's like my number one problem, but it's a fun problem to have. Exactly. <laughs> Do you want to tell the guest a little bit about yourself and your relationship to cinema and Varda herself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I have been a movie fan for the majority of my life. Uh, that was my family activity when I was a kid was we would go to the movie store and uh, we didn't have cable or anything and we didn't really have money to do anything else. So once a week we would go to the movie store and I'm, I'm one of four kids and we would each pick our own movie. And so every week it was discovering different movies and then my parents would, would watch movies and I would discover movies to them. And then when I was in like middle school, I really got into um older films. I watched TCM a lot when I was that age. Yeah, it's just the constant discovery and the best art form because it combines all the other art forms into one. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I've just always, always loved movies. And then as I got older and I started working, I started buying movies uh, and I discovered the Criterion Collection. And that's where I discovered Varda. I uh, just blind bought a movie one day. And that's how I discovered a lot of filmmakers. And now the internet is a lot easier. Yeah. Which, which Varda film was it? Uh, Vagabond was the first one, and it's the oh, one nice. that I, I haven't seen in the longest time because I bought it. I don't want to say how long ago, but I bought it <laughs> a long time ago, and uh, I haven't watched it since. But that's the the first one that I discovered, and yeah, no, it's cool. I, I think I kind of have like a similar start to my love of film, which I have mentioned in past episodes now, but 
we did have cable, but my parents were really big into film. And in the summers, because mm-hmm. I come from divorced parents, so they both worked. And being the eldest, I'd be watching my two other siblings, and they would just bring us to the local video shop and be like, mm-hmm. rent for the week. Yep. That's what you're doing at home. You're watching movies. So obviously took that to another level, <laughs> whereas my siblings just became regular human beings. And <laughs> I just... uh became who i am today but no that's cool vagabond being the first one is interesting mm-hmm. as well because i think it well we'll get into that later but i think it's a great place to start with her mm-hmm. films so usually i do a tagline but there's no actual tagline for this film so i'm gonna skip to some facts that i was reading about and i just kind of picked facts that i find interesting if you have any you can throw them in the first one is kind of an obvious one so the silent short film that's shown within cleo is called the fiancés of the bridge of mcdonald and you know it stars some familiar faces who are uncredited so you're not going to see them in the end credits but you see people like jean-claude Briali, jean-luc godard eddie constantine and anna karina and little snippets there of that silent short film so that's always fun i'd forgotten that was part of it when i did the rewatch mm-hmm. and another little fact that's probably my favorite and definitely because i hadn't seen this movie in a very long time the very first time i saw this film was in my first year of film school and it was shown for our french new wave week thankfully i had a pretty good prof who showed varda for french new wave mm-hmm. instead of going to like Truffaut or godard so they showed this and i definitely would have never caught up on this at that time because i didn't know who he was now is huge a huge part of my life but in one of the scenes where they're driving around they come across a cinema and the film that there's a billboard on top of is for Elmer Gantry, mm-hmm. which stars Brett Lancaster. Brett Lancaster. So I immediately noticed it this time. I definitely would not have noticed it like at 18, which was the first and last time I'd seen this. I immediately like had to like stop and like rewind it. I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And it's because yeah. that film had just been released in France at the time. And the shot, the film was shot in 1961. So that's when it was released there. And it's exciting to see Burr Lancaster. Just oh, yeah. like the, those old, those. And one of the things I like about this movie too, is that time capsule element of it. Mm-hmm. Like that was an actual ad for that movie in that city at that time. And that's so I, I always find those really interesting to see those little, those old posters and signs and things like that. I love seeing that. You don't see it as often anymore in films, but even because I just watched um, The Bonheur, because that's going to be the next film that I'm covering, there is a ad for a Billy Wilder film mm-hmm. that was released at the time. So it's fitting because I just did Billy Wilder, but I immediately noticed it. I think a lot of the new wave directors do that also because they're huge movie nerds. Yeah. So they'll be like shooting around cinemas and capturing what mm-hmm. was out at the time. I always find it fun. Also, I find that Schrader does that a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll have that. So he's one of the few people who does, who still does that. But that was a fun fact for hopefully other people, but for mainly for me. Another one was that Varda had a child who's Rosalie Varda, who owns the rights to all of her stuff. And she, I think she does a lot of costume design and she's really big in the film world. Or big for certain people in the film world right now. But she had that Rosalie with the actor Antoine Bourseillet who played Antoine in this film. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. I didn't know that this was the same Antoine that she had the kid with. Yeah, this pre-Demi. Another one is that Varda was part of like the cine club movement in Paris. So that's like basically like small independent groups who would put together screenings of films and 
some other popular members of those cine clubs were like Truffaut, Godard, and so on, Renat, and all that. And uh, she premiered Cleo at one of those cine clubs. And what she did was she handed out a questionnaire to the audience after the film for them to answer how they felt about what they had just seen. So I have some of the questions. I'm not going to read them all, but I just find a bit interesting some of the questions she asked. So she's like, did the film seem to have slow movements when, conversely, does the film lack a scene or a line or an image that would have provided for a better comprehension of the storyline or the characters? Or another one is like, in your opinion, will the young woman die? And so on. So it's not just like, did you like this movie? What did you not like? Yeah, like focus group style. Yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. what I find interesting about that is that I know that she's not coming from a place of her needing to know what people felt about her or her work. It's more of like an actual interest in Mm -hmm. people who took the time to watch this movie. And it's something you see a lot in her other stuff, especially like The Gleaners and I. And then the second part where she goes back to people and asks them how they've been getting on, if they've seen the film, because she's just genuinely interested. And I think she's always had a a human interest Mm -hmm. approach to her work. And you can see that in this film as well, because it's essentially just a snippet of someone's life. So I will get into that as well a little Mm -hmm. bit later. But the last point that I wanted to say is that this is her second narrative feature after La Pointe Courte. She actually got into filmmaking after she shifted from photography because she had like a strong interest in dialogue. And she was like, how's the best way to mix photography or images and words? So film, obviously, was the natural approach to that. She actually wasn't someone who watched movies before. Like she wasn't a cinephile, which is funny because in her later work, if I didn't know that, I would assume that she was a huge cinephile. Because mm-hmm. you see in like 101 Nights, mm-hmm. it's just about the love the of celebration film. of cinema. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, 100% is an absolute artist and mm-hmm. um, definitely humanitarian too, because throughout her entire career, it's like a narrative and then like five documentaries and then another narrative. And like these little, and all of her documentaries are either a like a performance piece or just, hey, this is an hour with this person. Or it's that kind of like immersive, just humanity to it. And that's that's what I like about her narratives is that they are always about the people and just a little snippet. They're not like grand stories. It's always about the person. And that's really what she brought to it with her background. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's a good segue to get into actually discussing the film. So on surface level, if you don't know much about this film or as with myself, who hadn't seen it in a very long time, I kind of remembered it being more of like a pretty image of a woman just strolling down the streets of Paris in her neighborhood. And it's obviously much more than that. And there's a shift when you realize, oh no, she's going through some shit, Mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't matter what she looks like. It's something that we can all relate to in some sort of sense or capacity. So this film is told in chapters and the title says from five to seven, but technically it's from like five to six thirty. Yeah, it's not the full two hours. Because from five to six thirty doesn't sound as good. It follows her through 13 chapters, 90 minutes of her day. And we're kind of thrown into she already knows that she is waiting for, you know, results of a test and Essentially, the way the film is structured is 
the way the people that she meets and she comes across her the day kind of direct her and mm-hmm. where she's going. You know, it's not like she has a mission and we're just people are coming in and out of that. It's she'll meet someone and then all of a sudden she's going this way, she's going that way. That's why there's a lot that happens in those 90 minutes, but it's all, you know, relevant. I'm just going to read a quick quote from Kelly Conway's book on just the time structure of this film. So the film's title, while evoking the traditional hour for extramarital trist, implies that we will accompany Cleo from five to seven. And indeed, Varda uses many strategies to emphasize duration, the apparent elimination of ellipsis, the multiple shots of clocks, the lengthy journeys by taxi, car, bus, and the long strolls through a park or grounds of a hospital. The film's logic is generally casual rather than wholly episodic. Cleo's movements are narratively or spatially justified. So the reason why I wanted to read that is because it seems like she's doing a lot, but you Mm. could do all those things in 90 minutes. Yeah. And it helps that she's in cars, she's in, you know, buses, she's in taxis to bring her from place to place. So I guess what I was wondering is how you feel about, you know, the way she moves around within this story. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really, I'm not the best person to talk about this movie. I realize that now because it really is probably (laughs) her most feminist film. It's a woman being a star she's a pop mm-hmm. singer that is like you said she's being controlled for the m- most part of the movie and then by the end of it she's realizing that she can decide is she gonna go to the train with the soldier or not like it's it's one of those things where it becomes her decision her sort of just being pulled in different directions i think that's a comment on that of, of women in society being like a pawn like you like you're a member of society but men run the society that kind of thing mm-hmm. and and all the men in the movie it, with the exception of the soldier at the end they're pretty yeah. much just you know they're like okay you are a tool for us to use essentially so i think that's that's where the going from place to place is just she's just going with the listening to everyone else it's everyone else telling her what she's doing she wants to buy the hat it's like no you can't buy the hat kind of thing and she wants to do this song no you're gonna do this song it's her really just being used as a as the tool and then sort of discovering that you don't have to do that you can be your own person and i think that the the way the film is structured and the way that she moves throughout paris is really just perfect example of like it's a great way to show that without without being too like heavy-handed it's very like like oh okay i get it like yeah that's Mm. i totally see what she's doing there no, I, I think it's interesting. And I think that you are the right or correct person to talk to because I kind of wanted to talk to a man about mm-hmm. this film because in a previous episode, I was talking to a girlfriend of mine and we were talking about the concept of a feminist film mm-hmm. and how that term has evolved mm-hmm. and how everyone should be able to talk about films that are quote unquote feminist. Mm-hmm. And I think Varda especially would want anyone to talk about this mm-hmm. because it should be something that they can understand. And it's good that, you know, men can watch this and not feel like <laughs> they're being attacked or something. It's kind mm-hmm. of like these are just facts. Yeah. This is how things this are. This is how it was. It, it's it's also like looking through it now with a lens 60 years later is is not the same as the lens like watching it then because th- what was a feminist film in the 1960s was hey we just want to be a member of society yeah and now it's now it's something else but then that's what it was so these these films were of the 1960s of these feminist films were 
hard for certain people in society to watch. I don't care if they watch those get like yeah. their opinions, but but it was very important to have those kind of art films and entertainment films to have a feminist message in this time because that's where society was going. Like it or not, that's what was happening. And so I and for Varda to be really at the forefront of that in terms of art house cinema is is really awesome because she she was like one of the only women doing it at that scale. I mean, this is her second film, and she was really going full full speed on it, and I and I really appreciate that as a as a human. Oh yeah, whether she went about it being like I'm going to make a feminist mm-hmm. film or not, which I don't know that she was a thing. It's just that she's a woman, mm-hmm. and she's drawing from her experiences, the experiences of the women around her, by just telling a story about a woman, and that's inherently feminist because it's told through that female gaze and it's funny because there's a shift right uh which you did touch upon where at the beginning she's being told what to do and we're seeing her it's the camera's a little bit more focused on her face her body Mm -hmm. and because that's the way that people are viewing her and there's that shift when she says she's leaving she takes off her wig she switches into a black dress there's that visual shift where she says okay i'm leaving and she doesn't want her assistant her maid coming with her I'm going out on my own. And then the camera shifts also. We're now seeing a wider spectrum because we're seeing what she's seeing. She's just walking in her area. She's sitting in cafes. She's walking around in parks. So that shift allows us to now see her the way that she wants to be seen Mm -hmm. and also allow her to be her own person, which is great. You know, Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't take much to create a film that is feminist but also, as you said, it's not heavy handed. It's not, you know, because it's the 60s. It's not what we think of 60s feminism as being. Mm-hmm. It's just allowing a woman to be a woman on screen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Which is great. Kind of speaking about that and the cinematography, because the cinematography is great in this. It's a gorgeous film. And, you know, the version that Criterion released is even more gorgeous than when I saw it originally. Mm-hmm. There are those lighting shifts from she's kind of more innocent at the beginning, lit kind of like an angel. And then when she switches to black, not that things get dark, but things kind of focus. As I said, they don't focus on her anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's shot entirely on location in the 14th arrondissement of Paris and in real apartments, real cafes and shops, which adds that layer of realness to it. In terms of the cinematography, how did you feel about that shift in narrative? Did you feel it was too sudden that she all of a sudden became a whole new person or if it was like earned and merited? No, I, I like I like the like we were talking about the the framing aspect of the beginning where it's it is a lot of close ups. It's, it's it's not really more exaggerated, but it's more focused on how she's being used. But then when, like you said, it opens up like the world mm-hmm. opens up and it gets a little bit more realistic, like uh, you're seeing these parks and these cafes and things like that, where it becomes, oh, no, she is. She is not, it's not like, hey, let's use this person here for our gain. It's, hey, this is just a person in, walking around the city. And it's, I, I mm-hmm. actually like the, the way that it, the way that her, it shifts both in her physical appearance and the, the, the way that it's shot because it is saying, hey, this is who she, who they want you to see her as versus who mm-hmm. this is who she is. And being able to see this is her as a person versus this is her as the pop singer that has to go. She has her uh, secretary and the uh, Michel Legrand doing the song mm-hmm. and everything. And it's, instead of being the the tool, she is now, hey, she's just a woman in society walking on the city. She has stuff on her mind and she needs to figure out how to deal with that. And so I, I actually really enjoy the way that it progresses, even from the the color being used yeah. to say, hey, this is a 
this is a story. And I think the black and white is often like people forget, like big reason why that after the advent of color that people would use black and white is to evoke a certain emotion. Like, Hey, you're watching a story. This isn't supposed to be a documentary. This is you're watching a story and the, the switch from the, the color and the credits to the black and white story. I've always enjoyed that too, because it shows like that's your setup is the, as the tarot card, like that's your setup. Mm-hmm. This is her journey sort of thing. And it's, and it's only a two hour journey. So that's, and also one of those yeah. things where it's perfect, like perfect timing and perfect execution. This, this is like one of her, this is like one of the best films of the 1960s. So the, the way that it's set up is just zero flaws. It's interesting that you brought up the setup because I was going to shift to that. And like I said, I've been saying I hadn't seen this in a long time. When it starts off in color, I was like, what's happening here? (laughs) Did they colorize Mm. this film? And I didn't realize. And then it shifts and I was like, oh, okay. I would completely forgotten about the setup. And I just love the way it does it. And it never shifts back to the color Mm. because, as you said, it is a setup. Like Varda telling us that we are watching this woman's story for this amount of time. It also sets up the superstition that runs throughout the story mm. by having the tarot cards and people who believe in that or that's something that they take great value in setting up how important that's going to be to the story. So the, like the superstition runs throughout and mm-hmm. it's told in 13 chapters. 13 is known by a lot of people as being an unlucky number. Right off the bat, you're seeing how deep it runs with her and her assistant as you said, it's like, if you're going to buy that hat, don't wear it. You can't mm-hmm. leave. You can't take it home with you because it's unlucky. It's Tuesday. You can't wear that hat. Mm-hmm. You just bought it. You can't put the hat on the bed because that's unlucky. They're taking taxis and they're looking at the numbers to make sure the numbers are not, you know, mm-hmm. unlucky numbers. At some point after the scene where they're in the theater and they're watching that silent short film and she drops her bag and the mirror falls out and it breaks mm-hmm. and like her mood shifts again, where she's like, oh yeah, I forgot that I'm waiting to hear my results if you Mm -hmm. know if it's cancer am i dying or whatnot so that superstition is super prevalent to who she is that's how she navigates the world so how do you feel that being such a strong part of the story do you find it's a bit much or is it done to kind of highlight her personality because we're only getting that snippet of her life well i like it's it's sort of it's sort of the uh the two sides of her like uh when the when she's getting the tarot cards like oh this could mean death or it could just mean something is going to change like it's everything has an, another meaning so it's her looking at and even with the ending it's yes it is what you think it is but it's treatable it's yeah. it's it's one of those things where it's like all these bad she is looking for the worst in everything but it's you know not it's not always the worst there's always something else like it's with the mirror it's like oh no that mirror wasn't for you that was for him yeah. kind of thing like that it's it's the if she is spending her day sort of like out of herself focused on this and just being the pawn then she's looking at just the negative and there is the positive and it's just like that shift in the city there's there's these tight shots where it's, she is the focal point versus the city is a character that that old trope but it's it's that yeah. two-sided thing it's yes yeah superstitions are a thing because yeah it could go either way that's how life works and and yeah. i like that it's a constantly like coming back up like oh yeah that you're losing yourself but this is what you were thinking about. And she just is constantly trying to get past being caught up in that thought, which is a terrifying thought. But either way, she still has to wait for the results. So it's you might as well not mm-hmm. focus on the negative. That's true. Because like, I think with anyone, if you think that there's a possibility that things are going to be bad, you kind of need that constant reminder. Mm-hmm. And she does try and remind herself at some point towards the beginning where she's looking in the mirror and she's like, oh, well, I still have my beauty. So I'll live longer than most. 
in the sense that she's like, I'm going to, if it's like, you know, terminal, I'm going to die looking like this because people are going to see me this way. So I'm going to be preserved to live on. So that's like a constant thing in her mind. She wants to know she's going to be remembered, I think. Mm -hmm. But then you have your outside sources, like her friends who are saying, you know, that mirror wasn't for you. You don't know what the results are. Just wait till you hear the results. So that brings us to like Antoine, the soldier Mm -hmm. that she meets Mm -hmm. at the end. And it's funny the way they meet because she's just off looking at a waterfall. She's clearly just thinking she's upset about the mirror that broke and she just wants time alone. And he's talking to her. He's pestering her. And he comes off kind of as a creep at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Where you're just like, let this woman alone. But then she she's like, okay, maybe I do want a bit of company from someone I have no relation to at all. Like, he, she doesn't know him. He doesn't know her. And I think that's why she's so comfortable around him. Because mm-hmm. she's like, there's no stakes here. He doesn't know anything about me. He's not expecting anything from me. He's told me that he only has like a couple hours left in the city. So I'm likely never going to see him again. So I can tell him what's going on with me and that comfort. How do you feel about the insertion of his character? How much time they spent together? And the fact that the film ends with them together in quotes. He's just he's just another person that Mm -hmm. is also dealing with the anxiety of uncertainty. He's going back to fight in the war and he's just like her, just waiting for that moment and uh of of uncertainty. So he's he's trying to get his mind off of it and she's trying to get her mind off of it. So I, I think and he's probably the most likable guy in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's and he's he's not like super likable, but there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that they're there for each other just as a stranger like, "Hey, I'm a person that's clearly dealing, dealing with something internal. So are you. Let's we're both here and let's just talk and and that's why he's like asking her, "Do you want to walk me? Like, can you walk me to the train station kind of thing?" Like he's he's looking for something to take his mind off the fact that he is about to go to war. Mm-hmm. And he might not come back. And she's looking for something to, hey, you may have cancer, you may be dying, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I love I love that. It's it's somebody that comes into her life that wasn't forced upon her. It's not like, hey, this is your meeting with this person or that person. This is it's like business or, or her career wise. Mm-hmm. It's just a stranger that she just comes across. And it's just a natural interaction and i and i do like the sort of ambiguity of of their talk because it's not really a romantic connection it's not like oh she found love everything's going to be okay it's just it's just hey she talked to this guy and yeah the the reality of that is you know that's sometimes that just happens when you're standing in a park sometimes you just talk to a stranger Uh, and i think this I mean, I'm not going to say it's the very first film that did it, but it's such an early precursor to films that have done it. You know, you mm-hmm. see in your Before Sunrise, you know, mm-hmm. trilogy and so on, it's basically lifted from that scene or it's like it's reminiscent of that scene mm-hmm. and how we can go from there. It's like two people at that very moment in time who just need a bit of comfort exactly, and who feel comfortable, you know, sharing that because there is a chance that they will never see each other again. And um, one of the answers in the questionnaires that she had sent out when she did the premiere, someone had mentioned that they really loved that everyone sitting there anticipating in that very last moment for them to kiss because they're looking at each other and you assume it's probably going to kiss and cut to black, but it doesn't mm-hmm. because it's not, it's not the type of film. It's not your Hollywood film. I think it perfectly ends like right there. I think that's mm-hmm. a perfect ending. I guess how you feel about that. About the way that it ends? 
yeah. about the way that there's their story ends. I, I, I think that it doesn't need to keep going. Like yeah. it does, it doesn't need, if it were a Hollywood movie, they would probably end up getting married at the end. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's like one of those things like of that, of that time, not, not now, but of that time. So yeah, I, I, I'd like that. It's just, yeah, it's ambiguous. You don't, you don't know that they're, they're not like falling in love or anything like that. They're just talking. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like that. She didn't make it a love story. It didn't yes. need to be a love story. So it doesn't, ha- so she didn't make it a love story. It, it never feels forced or like. You know, they're kind of hinting at something. They're not even necessarily friends. They're just two people who happen to be mm-hmm. talking. There is one shot that I really, really love. And it's when they're on the bench. She's been told at this point that she does have the cancer, but it is treatable. They're sitting on the bench and he says, I wish I didn't have to go right now. And she kind of grabs his hand just like as like a tender thing mm-hmm. to be like, oh, we still have some time together. And then the, it cuts and there's a shot between like the trees. Mm-hmm. looking down at them in the background. And it, that's the only time that you're kind of taken out of her perspective. Now we're mm-hmm. looking at her as opposed to through her. I don't know if for some reason that shot really stuck out to me because it's like a reminder that, oh, this is a snippet and now we're getting to the end of that and you're not going to find out more exactly. about this woman. That's all we needed because it's like we're kind of like the Antoine in the situation. We're just seeing her for that one moment. We're never going to see her again. Exactly. So I, I really appreciate that shot. Another thing, if we just talk, go back to kind of the shifting of the gaze, there is that scene where she's kind of just in the cafe and listening to people. Mm-hmm. And that's the scene where, as you said, we're kind of reminded that she's just a regular human being. Mm-hmm. I think she puts one of her songs on in the cafe and no, mm-hmm. no one reacts. And uh, she tells her friend after, about this when they're in the car and they're driving around and you can sense that she's like the sense of dread of being like, am I going to be remembered? And and I like the, the relationship that she has with her friend and they're just driving around talking. You know, then it cuts to them dropping off the film reel to her partner. What I noticed a lot is that when men do show up in this so at first we have like her her lover who shows up for like two minutes. Yeah. We never see him again. And then we have the two composers that show up, they do their song, and he's just kind of berating her mm-hmm. and calling her a baby. And that's like an interruption. And then the friend's boyfriend, he shows a film that interrupts things and Antoine kind of interrupts things. So I'm not saying that Vard is saying that men are interruptions in her life, but they do kind of break apart the story so i don't know how you if you notice that yeah i think it is one of those things where it does come it does what makes it come across more as a feminist film is you would think every time a man shows up oh the story's gonna go this way and it's like nope they're just gonna do their business they're self-centered and mm-hmm. she's just she's just sort of in the way and then and that's why with with antoine when he when he first comes up you're like oh this guy's gonna be a, a creep but he's not he's you know he's just a, just a guy it's it yeah. is that sort of every time a man shows up it is always a a reminder of how of her perspective of this is it doesn't need to be a love story it's not it's it's just just this and then and it's a play on that the five to seven the the affair time is i always when i first heard about this film that's what i thought it was about was because i for some reason i knew the five to seven expression and oh, yeah. i thought it would be more like james hill's like lunch hour where it's just about that it's about a woman that's having an affair but it's not it's a it's a woman that is not hooking up with men she's she is just being a woman mm-hmm 
So you expect every time a man to show up that it's going to be some kind of like, you know, romantic interest or sexual interest, but it really, it's just, nope, you're just here and yep, I'm here for you. Okay. Yep. Yep. Bye. Like that kind of thing. And so I, I do like how the men are just sort of like scattered throughout the film because realistically you're going to have interactions with people of the opposite, of the opposite sex. And that's not what her story is. Her story is not about that. And Mm. I, and I do enjoy the, the realism of the new wave and, and how it's not every story needs to be, you know, if, if this were an American film, she would have fallen in love at least twice <laughs> yeah. in that time. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what it would have been about. The the scene with the lover would have been longer and, and yeah. but it's shows her as this time period and just sprinkle the guys in there just to show like that it's a real person with real interactions. Well, exactly. Cause you know, if you, you know, after we finish recording this, if you time yourself walking around for 90 minutes out, you know, around people, you're going to be interacting with different people in just a normal way like she mm-hmm. is. Whether you have extended chats with them or not, you're still going to be interacting with people and you're not going to be falling in love with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's not going to be anything other than just those interactions. And I think it just ties back to like her relationship to her audience and the way she respects her audience. So there's a quote from her that I do want to read that she said, I understood that no one should ever underestimate the intelligence and comprehension of the audience, despite what professional distributors and purveyors of big spectacles say. You know, she respects the fact that we are able to understand that she doesn't need to be doing, or Cleo doesn't need to be doing more than what we would be doing in our real life as opposed to being like oh people are not going to understand why she didn't go with this guy why she didn't go with that guy or why she didn't go straight to the doctor why she's kind of wandering she respects the fact that we can understand that this is just 90 minutes of her life Mm -hmm. and that's all we're going to get all we're going to see my question for you is how do you feel about the way she treats her audience i know we've kind of talked about it but within this film and other films you've seen of hers because mm-hmm. I know, as she said, she mixes between the documentary and the fiction. I, she, I think that she respects her audience. I think that she doesn't want to put something on the screen that she doesn't care about and doesn't find interesting. So this is a story about a woman waiting for test results. She's not going to shoehorn in something that, that doesn't pertain to that story. And she's done that through all her movies. There's no like, there's no fluff added. Yeah. It's always like, this is the story. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what the story is. Or this is the documentary. Like, this is what the documentary is about. My, my, one of my favorite films by her is Uncle Yonko. I don't know if you saw it. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. So Uncle Yonko is a documentary about her meeting her like fifth cousin or something like that that lives in America with like a bunch of hippies. And it's just this short little story. And it doesn't stray from just showing her interactions with this guy. Like that's all the movie is, is her interactions with, the, with this rel- distant relative. And with a lot of her shorts, it's like, hey, this is, I'm going to show you this, like this small piece. This is a, a conversation with this person. This is a story about two people talking like that. It's, it's never... Her films never give you what you don't want. And it's never yeah. added in. And this one, and Cleo always does this, and a lot of her earlier films too. It's mostly just about either one, two, maybe three people just talking, just being, yeah. that's the story. And she says, so she gives you what she says she's going to give you. And I think that's what makes her a superior filmmaker is that she doesn't, she, and she didn't have to like bend to the needs of like a corporation either. That's also a huge mm-hmm. part of it. It was because the new wave was going full swing with Truffaut and Godard's, she was able to make the films that she wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And I know that she 
is obviously part of that movement and she's very different. If we're going to pair those three together, she's very different than the other mm-hmm. ones. Yeah. Not that she's actively being like, oh, I need to distance myself from them. It's more so that she's just being herself, you mm-hmm. know, and Truffaut, whom I love, is kind of a kind of fluffier is the best way, but he wraps his stuff in a nicer bow. At least that he's more of a story. He's more of a storyteller mm-hmm. than her. Hers, hers is hers is more as, a, as an observer within. Exactly. I think Godard is also an observer, but he's kind of doesn't, he doesn't have the respect for his viewer that Varda does in any sense. He's actually a lot more aggressive yeah. <laughs> about it. And I think he's making films for himself, not to attack Godard because I feel like he comes up a lot when I speak to people. Yeah, well, he he was a he was a great he was a great filmmaker that completely lost mm-hmm. his mind and yeah, he became the kind of person that says if you don't like what I like, then you're the enemy. So essentially, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lot of people I went to film school with. So yeah. I, I think Varda also is making stuff for herself, but because she's someone who is relatable and she's a decent person who cares about people, it comes across as she's making a film for us all, mm-hmm. which I love. I don't know if there's any other points of the film that you wanted to touch upon before we move on. Yeah, I think we covered the whole thing. I, th- I think it's it's one of those movies where it is just, and it's why, and it's why I think it's her probably her best film is that it's very simple, but it's done extremely well, and it's enlightening, it's entertaining, it's it's engrossing. Like it's a very simple film done by a very talented filmmaker. That's all you can really ask for, mm-hmm. to be honest. So. I guess I'll shift to the the end segment, which is called End Credits. And I ask the same two questions to all guests. First is, someone comes up to you and says, Hey, Benny, I've never seen a Varda film before. Where do I start? Do you recommend Cleo? If so, why? And if not, what film of hers are you recommending? Uh, Cleo would probably be the pick. Um, it would definitely be one of like her first films so one of their like maybe like something within the 54 to 64 range like one of those mm-hmm. and then i would say go to her later stuff not the documentaries the the later narratives um because i think she was more of a more fleshed out as a filmmaker like the stories got a little bit more intricate but i would definitely say cleo is probably a great starting point uh yeah. would be a good one any of those earlier like right in the heart of the new wave films would be yeah. a good start, but Cleo might be the perfect one because it really is. It's not too long. It's not, it's not, gonna, it's not too academic. Like it's not going to, you don't have to like really, really think about what it's, what it's trying to say. It's very, mm-hmm. very, it's lighthearted. It's relatable. It's one of those films and it's just beautifully made. So I, I think that it, that's why it's more of a, with other French new wave filmmakers, there's always like a, okay, well you don't want to recommend like radical Godard as a starting yeah. point and you don't want to do like later depressed Truffaut like you want to do <laughs> earlier Truffaut or like Romer it's pretty much the same throughout yeah with Varda I would say definitely the earlier stuff is a great starting point because you really she really put herself and her touch on screen with those and you could see who she was as a person no I agree I think when you're when you want to get someone to watch a filmmaker who you really likes like their film sometimes you don't always pick your favorite Sometimes mm-hmm. you pick the one that's going to explain exactly who they are. And I think Cleo does that. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes she has films later on in her career that are more more so even politically charged, but they're still accessible. But this one has everything that she is in a package. And that's all you really need to know. And you can mm-hmm. decide from there. If you don't like Cleo, 
not that you say you, you couldn't like her other stuff, but maybe that's not for you. Yeah, yeah, it's not your style of film because I I think that if you don't like Cleo, then you're not going to really love her stuff, to be honest. So I think Cleo would be a great place to start. And then, like you said, if you go further on, you can go to like you know your vagabond, and from there because it's another kind of similar story of following a woman, mm-hmm. but it's much darker than Cleo mm-hmm. is. Second question is the double bill question. So if you're pairing this film, you're making a double bill either for yourself or someone else, what film would you pair this with? And it doesn't have to be another Varda film. So I, I actually have two because I can't yep. <laughs> decide uh, which way to go with it. But one of one of the ways I would go would be uh, Richard Brooks' 1969 film, The Happy Ending, which is Hollywood's attempt at a feminist film. It's flawed for sure, but it is it is the same a very similar aspect of a woman breaking out of societal expectations and just becoming a person. Like that's her whole thing. She but it's more ham fisted, it's more like uh, you know, bigger budget, bigger stars, everything. Mm-hmm. But uh it's it's entertaining and it's also it's very a nice story too. But the other way I would go with it is uh the Paul Rudd film Two Days. Uh, where it's a actor who is kind of fed up with his life and decides that he's going to kill himself in two days. So it's just that journey over that weekend of his last two days. Oh, okay. I don't know this one. Two yeah, it's, it's 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 when he was doing indie movies. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's pre Anchorman, Paul Rudd. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's also that sort of like microcosm of this is just this amount of time in this person's life, obviously more than an hour and a half. But I, I think those two would pair well because it is that moment of despair leading to self-discovery mm-hmm. aspect of it. So one of those two, I would think, would make a very good uh, double feature. No, that's cool. I I love asking this question because one, most people, it's hard for them to pick just one. So they usually give me a couple, which is good because I'm always coming <laughs> in with like a list that I've- it depends on which what mood you're in. If you want to if you want to watch, you know, the, the, the two films about a woman self-discovery or if you want to mm-hmm. go with similar themes kind of thing. Exactly. I also came up with two. One was one that's not even really similar, but it's also kind of following a woman was the uh, the cranes are flying. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the similar, but it's kind of like she's going through a moment of despair. And just how that's affecting her and we're seeing everything through her eyes. But the one I would probably pair it with, which is probably <laughs> controversial because it's not about a woman. But the first one that I thought of was Hannah and her sisters. Mm-hmm. Because we got the Woody Allen character who thinks he's going to die, but then is told that he isn't. So you kind of get the continuation of Cleo. Of mm-hmm. She now knows she's not going to die. He knows he's not going to die. This is how he's navigating his life. He's turned his life around. So again, it's a completely different thing, but it's kind of like if you start with Cleo and with Han or sisters, if you like watching Woody Allen films or not, but that's the first one I thought of. I also kind of thought of Stardust Memories. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I think it just was like the following of someone as they kind of think about their life, but that's also kind of eight and a half. So then it led me down. I was like, okay, I need to stop. Let's just cut it down to the two. So, yeah, I think those two. I think we've covered Cleo to the best of our ability. You know, it's a film that I think we can only say so much without digging into things that don't need to be digged into. I think it's something that you just need to watch. Mm -hmm. As you said, it's such an easy watch. And I can't imagine for as heavy of a dialogue-based film it is, it's still extremely accessible and watchable. Mm. So I hope that if you've made it this far, you've seen it. But if not, that you go watch it because I don't think there's really any spoilers in this film. It's just a film to experience. 
and that you go watch other Varda films. But thank you so much for joining, Vinny. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, intro music by Lamar Walker, and additional help from Dara McGrath. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode on Varda's Le Bonheur.